0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 17. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. Beginning with verse 17 of chapter 2. And gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's ask the Lord for his help. Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning, Lord, for help and understanding, help and application, help and growth and grace, Father. We pray, Lord, that you would open our minds and hearts to your word and that, Father, you would work in our hearts and minds, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers, that we would continue to align our hearts very carefully and our lives very carefully after the pattern that you've set before us, and that our hearts would be set free by the wonderful grace of the gospel. So, Father, we thank you and praise you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, I think it would do us a lot of good just to try to review where we've been. There's some of us, I look around the room, have not heard probably many of these messages. So what has been going on in Galatians? Well, Paul has gone into the area of Galatia, whether it be the north or south, we're not sure, but that's not important for understanding the letter. But he's gone into the areas of Galatia. He's planted churches, and he has departed to go plant churches elsewhere, and shortly after his departure, some teachers come in and begin to distort the gospel. And this is actually what the cause of this letter is all about. If you look at verse 6, Paul says he's astonished. Astonished at what? That the churches in Galatia are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So Paul is absolutely astonished that these churches that he has recently planted have now are, are really toying and flirting with this distorted gospel that these teachers are pushing and Paul goes on to say that even if we are an angel this is verse 8 should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you let him be accursed and these are strong words Paul's using some very very strong language and I know at the uh, Bible study down at the park I've been uh, developing the subject of exclusivity, and it's one that we've lo- we've been talking about quite a bit since we started uh, this study in Galatians. And what does that simply teach? It teaches that there's only one way to heaven. And, uh, you know, this is really countercultural. Uh, we want to believe that there's a lot of different ways to heaven, and everybody's basically on the right path, believing in their own way. And the, the, the key factor is whether they're sincere in it or not. Uh, but Paul's turning that up on its head. He's saying, no, there's only one way. And even if an angel were to come and give you even as much as a distortion of that one way, let him be accursed. Why such strong language? Because he's going to be leading you into ruin. That's why. Um, this is not, uh, the, the, the issue that Paul is taking up here is not a secondary issue. It's a primary issue. You know, on secondary issues, we want to exercise some freedom and some charity. But when it comes to primary issues, no, we have to be willing and ready to join the Apostle Paul for fighting because our souls are at stake on this. The souls of the people in Galatia are at stake over this issue. Paul begins his argument in verse 11. Uh, He says, I would have you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So what's he saying right there? He's saying, no, this true gospel that was preached by me isn't something that has been fabricated by any man. It isn't something that has been created by any man. And he goes on to say that it's not something that I was taught by any man, but that I had received it directly from Jesus Christ. And then he begins to give us his biographical sketch, and one of his first arguments is really from his own personal testimony. It's like he's saying, listen, you know, I was a fierce persecutor of the church. And then Jesus revealed himself to me. And I really think that it was largely just Jesus saying, Paul, or more more accurately, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, in, in Acts chapter 9, when that's happening, you know, what does what Saul say, or what does Paul say, if you will? Who are you, Lord? And he discovers that Jesus is alive. And I think with Paul's great knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, that was probably enough to set everything in motion to go, oh no, oh no. Jesus really is the promised Messiah. Now all of a sudden, the great light turns on, and now the Apostle Paul can now begin to understand all those passages that he had memorized. And now the fiercest persecutor of that day, the fiercest persecutor of the church, becomes the greatest church planner. You know, I think if Paul was, I think if Paul was here right now, he'd say, you know, I, I, by God's grace, you know, I've planted one church. I think if the Apostle Paul was here, we would say, well, big deal, Rick. You plant one church. How many churches did the Apostle Paul plant? So he goes from being one of the fiercest persecutors of the church to becoming arguably its greatest church planter and the author of 13 letters of the New Testament. So his first argument is, look, look what's happened to me. But then he goes on to say, after my conversion, I didn't go down to Jerusalem and sit at the feet of the apostles. No, I went out to Arabia, then I went to Damascus. And we know from Acts, he preached in Damascus until there was a threat on his life, then he escaped. And then he made his way back down to Jerusalem. And when he was in Jerusalem, he didn't stay very long. In verse 19, chapter 1, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Um, and then I went into Syria and Cilicia. So then he goes back up to his hometown of Tarsus. This is what he does. And he's there for 14 years, verse verse 1 of chapter 2. After 14 years, he goes back down to Jerusalem, and interestingly enough, he takes Titus along with him. Now what's so significant about that is Titus is not circumcised. And we get a little bit of idea of what's going on here. Um, These false teachers are pushing circumcision. Now, we get that. It's implied by this. Paul is saying, listen, I took Titus with me to Jerusalem. I went down to Jerusalem because of a revelation set before uh, before me. I went down before them privately. What does he do? He goes down there. He proclaims the gospel message he's always proclaimed. And he went down and he, he proclaimed this message to see if he hadn't been running in vain. And it's important that we understand, as I've said many times through the course of this study, that Paul's not going down there to get his paper graded by the apostles. And why would I say that? Because Paul is making the argument that he didn't receive this message from the apostles. He received it directly from Jesus. So if he's taking his paper down to the apostles to get graded by the apostles, then he is in essence taking Jesus' paper down to the apostles to get it graded. We can't take that interpretation. So then what is Paul doing? Paul is concerned about division in the church. Is undoubtedly concerned about the souls of the people in Jerusalem. Because if they're adding to the gospel in Jerusalem, if they're adding to that gospel, then it's a different gospel. You're ultimately going to end up with two different churches. You're going to have a church in Jerusalem, a Jewish church, if you will. Then you're going to have a Gentile church. And the Jerusalem church, if they're adding to the gospel, is not going to be any church at all. And it's going to come down to a plus sign. You know... Two plus two equals four. That plus sign that's in the middle there. In fact, I want to entitle this message, this, a satanic plus. Does that make sense? This plus sign is not just a little bit off. This plus sign is the difference of life and death. And who is being served by death? It's not God, it's Satan. And that's why I want to call it a satanic plus. Paul brings Titus down, introduces Titus to the apostles. The apostles don't force Titus to be circumcised. That's the point of the argument. Now, there were others down there who were trying. And what does Paul say? Paul says, even Titus, who was with me, this is verse 3 of chapter 2, was not forced to be circumcised. In other words, the apostles treated him as a brother. Treated him as a brother in the Lord, not forcing him to be circumcised. Yet, verse 4, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. And then we begin to see the burden of the Apostle Paul. What is the burden of the Apostle Paul? The burden of the Apostle Paul is that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. That's verse 5. And we have to lock our minds in verse 5. What is Paul really doing here? He has a burden to see that the truth of the gospel is preserved for you. And we can write ourselves into the you right there, can't we? Because if the gospel would have been lost in first century Galatia, what is a good chance it would have been lost for us as well here in 21st century Chester? Does that make sense? So it's a matter of life and death here. Now, Paul continues with his biographical sketch, and when we get to verse 11, Paul's telling us a story. If you look at chapter 2, verse 11, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Now, we don't know exactly when Cephas is Peter, just another name for Peter. We don't know exactly when Peter goes to Antioch, but I think our best guess is Peter is in Antioch when Paul returns from his first missionary journey. So there Peter is. Now, what's the scene look like? Well, it was wonderful. You know, we're all worshiping. The Gentile churches are worshiping. Peter shows up. This is great. And I've spoken about this before. Imagine the stories. If Peter was with us right now, what would you want to do after the service? You'd want to ask him about the stories of when him and Jesus and the disciples were parading around Palestine. Wouldn't you want to hear those stories? And it was great because afterwards, you know, we we got in the car after a worship service and we went off to each other's houses and we got the barbecue out and we're cooking hamburgers and hot dogs and Peter is showing up with a bun and we're slapping a hot dog on the bun and he's eating it with us. And we're asking him, hey, Peter... uh, tell us about this, tell us about that, tell us about this, and the whole afternoon goes by. And then some folks from Jerusalem show up, people from James show up, and everything starts to change. Peter begins to withdraw from them. Now, we have looked at this. We've looked at this from a number of different angles, Peter's withdrawal. I don't think Peter is becoming a heretic here. I think if you would have given Peter a theological exam, he would have passed the exam and said we're saved by faith in Christ alone. I think for sure he would have filled that out correctly. But what's going on here and what the Apostle Paul catches is that his behavior is proclaiming a different gospel. Let's put ourselves in, we're in Galatia. You know, we've been enjoying Peter's company. We've been cooking the hamburgers and the hot dogs. He's been with us. He's been eating the whole thing. These folks show up, and the next thing you know, Peter's not eating with us no more. He's over in the corner. Now, what is that going, as I've said in earlier messages, what is that? what kind of message is that going to be for us? The message is going to be really clear. We're not all the way in. We thought we were all the way in. But now we see when these folks from Jerusalem show up and Peter abandons us, it just doesn't appear that we're all the way in. Maybe we have to get circumcised to be in. Maybe we have to lose the hot dogs and start practicing these dietary laws to get in. Do you see what's happening here? There's a plus sign. Faith in Christ plus no more hot dogs. I'm serious. Faith in Christ plus circumcision. Faith in Christ, I mean, where is it going to stop? It's going to be faith in Christ plus Sabbath um, observance as it was observed in ancient Judaism. Faith in Christ plus, 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 plus. And that that sets us up for verse 15. And what we need to understand about verses 15 through 21 is Paul is still speaking to that situation. I think, if I remember correctly, and some of you maybe can tell me, I think the NIV still has quotation marks as far as verse 21. Am I correct? At the end of verse 21 in the NIV, is there a quotation mark after the period? I think there is. But I don't remember. And if there is, what the translators are telling us, that this is all part of Paul's speech to Peter and the other Jews. Now, the, the ESV translators do not put quotation marks there. And I am told, I am told that they did not put quotation marks there because, not because they didn't believe this was part of, of Paul's address to Peter and the other Jews, but because he's no longer quoting it word for word. I think we can take verse 14 as word for word when he looks at Peter and says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So it's the translator's opinion that that was word for word, but the rest, Paul is giving us a summary because you can read verses 15 through 21 in just a few seconds, can't you? And I don't think Paul just spoke for a few seconds about this matter. He would have spoke about this matter for a while. That's just how these things go. I mean, watch the video footage of the Senate, and you'll see this is how these things go. Uh, They don't go uh, quickly. Um, And so Paul is arguing here, and we started two weeks ago to look at this argument. He's arguing here, and, and if you remember, one of the points that I made two weeks ago is that Paul begins with things that they agree on. And it's a good practice for us. That was one of the applications I wanted to make two weeks ago is that when we're talking people with people about their faith, find points of agreement. You know, when you start talking to people about their faith, ask them if they believe in God. Okay, if they say yes, okay, we have a point of agreement. You know, ask them if they believe that Jesus is. Do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe Jesus is a Savior? Begin to find out where, where, where people are at. Start with these points of agreement. This is what Paul does. Notice what he says in verse 15. If we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentiles, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. This is what he says. What is he talking about? He's talking about something that all of his Jewish buddies would have agreed, which is what? God had given his word to Israel, hasn't he? He had given the scriptures to the Jewish people. He had given the covenant of grace to the Jewish people. They had the sign of the covenant of grace, circumcision, given to them. They had had Moses and the law of Moses given to them they'd had the Ten Commandments given to them they'd had all these wonderful prophecies of a Messiah to come given to them and what were they doing they were following these things following these things to find favor with God if you will Uh, whereas all of the other nations around them were not observing these things So they would look around at the people. They were meant to be a light to the world. That's a sermon for another day. I'm going to avoid going down that right now. But they were meant to be a light to the world. But it was really clear that the Gentiles around them were not doing these things. They didn't have the word of God. They didn't have all of these things. And so what did they say? Well, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. But notice what else they agree on. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Now, what do they mean by that? What What is Paul saying? Paul is saying is that we cannot get right with God by our personal obedience. Now, you see, it's important that we understand that this is something that Peter and Barnabas and all the others agree to. That's not what's being argued here. Faith in Christ is not what's being... They're all arguing that we have to have faith in Christ. They're all arguing for that. So they all agree. We have to have faith in Christ. We cannot be justified by works of the law. That means we cannot get favor with God based on our performance of the Word of God. In other words, we can't just... you know It goes back to the the little fun thing I do once in a while. I want to go to heaven, but I can't be good. Okay, we just can't do, We can never be good enough. And if we could be good enough from this day forward, what do we do about everything that's happened in the past? What do we do about the fact that we've been born into sin and we were rebels right out of the gate? What do we do with that? It's absolutely impossible. So everybody agrees to this. Now, before we go any further, we're going to have to make a distinction here. We're going to make an awful mess, not only of Galatians, but we're going to make an awful mess of the entire New Testament and the entire Bible for that matter. We're going to have to make a distinction between two words, justification and sanctification. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. But for the benefit of everyone in the room, what are these two words? Justification is what Paul is talking about. That's what's in the text. Three things are important in studying Scripture. Context, context, and what? Context, that's right. And what's on the table right now is justification, not sanctification. What is justification? Justification is God's declaration that you are just in His sight, that you are righteous in His sight. Now, how in the world could rotten sinners like us be declared righteous in God's sight? There's only one way, and you know my cross and stick figure that I'm always drawing for everybody. You know, you've got the little stick figure is the person, the repentant sinner who's coming to Jesus, coming clean with their sins. They're looking to the cross. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Um, uh, Save my soul, if you will. And what happens is those sins are given to Jesus. He takes those sins on the cross, right? God has to punish sin. He's just. So he punishes Jesus in place of the repentant sinner who's putting their faith and trust in him. But then... It doesn't stop there, does it? Jesus has a perfect record, perfect righteousness, and he gives that perfect righteousness to that repentant sinner. This happens instantaneously the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ savingly. Did you get that? That's not a process. The moment that you put your faith and your trust in Christ savingly, instantaneously, God declares you just you are justified that is not something that can be taken away from you after that happens that is not something that can be compromised when god makes that declaration you're as justified as you will ever be period in all eternity because you are justified by the perfection of jesus christ and this is not of yourself lest anyone should boast So that's justification. Now, sanctification is simply growth in Christlikeness. It's growth in grace. Now, sanctification is not what's being discussed right here. We have to make sure we understand that. What's being discussed right here is justification. Once you've been justified, you are justified. Okay? Okay? And we're not justified by our personal performance of the law. That's the good part of the good news. You know, the gospel simply means good news. And the good part of the good news is this declaration that you can be just by a faith in the one who has earned our salvation for us. Right? If we mess with that, we take the good out of the good news and it simply becomes news. That's a big difference. Actually, I would say we take the good out and we put bad in place of it. It becomes bad news because now we're back to law keeping again, aren't we? Now, in verse 17, what is Paul saying? I think, Paul, I think Paul's countering an accusation against his gospel in verse 17. Verse 17 is not easy. Now worked really hard in verse 17. You know, I've gotten some new commentaries too, and I'm, I'm like, oh, you know, this is going to be good. You know, someone's going to settle what verse 17 is all about. And, and uh, one of the commentators who I, I really respect, Douglas Moo, I respect him immensely. And he, he says right off the bat, verse 17 is unclear. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Moo is part of why I bought your book. <laughs> I'm just teasing. He's an outstanding scholar. But it's not clear. What it probably means is, notice Paul says, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, what's probably going on here, I think it's certainly pointing us back to verse 15, where the Jews are agreeing at this. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Why? Because we have the law, we have the dietary laws, we have all of this stuff, and we're following it, where the Gentiles are not even making an attempt to do that. So, The accusers are probably accusing Paul and saying, listen, if your gospel is true, you're making Jesus out to be a servant of sin because you're teaching everybody that they don't have to be circumcised anymore. They don't have to follow these dietary laws anymore. You're teaching them all that. So your gospel is actually making Jesus a servant of sin. Look at all of them. They're eating hot dogs after church. Now, this would have been fighting words in those days. I mean... This would have been a serious matter. People were getting killed over stuff like this. So this would have been a serious thing. Now, how does Paul answer to that accusation? He uses really strong words. I don't think in the Greek there's a stronger way of saying no than the little phrase that we have that's translated in the ESV is certainly not. I think the old King James translation is God forbid, Um he is saying emphatically, no, Christ is no servant of sin. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, what in the world does that mean? I think there's two meanings here. Sometimes, make it an, sometimes folks make this an either or, but I don't think we need to do that. I think we can include both. After having been justified by Christ and declared just in God's court, If we go back to law-keeping after that, what are we doing? According to Paul, we're turning our backs on him who called us in Christ Jesus because we're back to trying to earn our way in. And we can't have it both ways. We can either humbly come to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive what he is offering us, or we can try to earn it ourselves. But you can't do both. And what are you doing? As soon as you try to obey those laws again, what are you doing? What are those laws going to do to us every time? What will they do to us? They are going to condemn us. They are going to condemn us every single time until we're glorified in heaven. They will condemn us. That's what those laws will do. It doesn't make the laws bad. The law is good. But we can't keep it. That's the problem. Again, we're talking about justification. Let's not think about sanctification right now. It's important to remember we're talking about justification. He says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, some commentators will say, no, that's not what's in view. What's in view is the wall of hostility. What's that all about? Well, let's think about it. Peter's come in. Here we are enjoying time with Peter. Uh, Everything's going wonderful until these folks from Jerusalem show up. When these folks from Jerusalem show up, Peter withdraws from us. And now there's this wall between us. And that's the very wall that always existed between Jews and Gentiles. And it's the very wall that Paul tells us in Ephesians is brought down by the gospel. That wall of hostility is brought down by the gospel, and this amazing thing begins to happen. Jews and Gentiles are able now to join together for table fellowship in a meal after church. But if we start rebuilding those those laws, well, then what's going to happen? We're no longer going to be able to have that fellowship. You see, that plus sign is really bad, isn't it? Look at verse 19. It'll start making this clearer. Paul says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, you see, if we're getting sanctification, if we're bringing sanctification into this, you know the message, and then people say this. I hear people say this stuff. They'll say, the law doesn't matter anymore because I'm with Paul. I died to the law, and now I live to Christ. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that as Christians, we're lawless? That God doesn't care if we defraud people. He doesn't care if we lie, we cheat and steal. He doesn't care if we murder. He doesn't care how we live at all because we have died to the law. No, he's not talking about sanctification. He's not talking about our growth in grace. He's talking about justification. For justification, we die to the law. What's that mean? In terms of attempting to to gain God's favor by law-keeping, we've died to that. We've quit that. We've given up on that. And in case you're wondering if this is just some old problem they had back in Galatia, it's a it's a yeah, that problem is alive today as it's ever been anytime. Let me give you an illustration. Our friend Robin passed away this week. And as I was telling people about Robin's death and telling everybody we're going to be having a funeral, we don't have the announcements made yet, but people began to open up and and a cup I think either two or three times this happened where folks said to me, this one man, I'm thinking of the one man in particular, says to me, he says, man, he goes, I'm not far behind her. And I said, okay, um, are you ready? Because I believe, I believe Robin was ready to go be with the Lord. Are you ready to go be with the Lord? And his response was, I hope so. I said, you hope so. What makes you, what makes you hopeful? Do you know what he said next? You probably do know what he said next. I've always tried to live a good life. Have you now? Really? Every day of your life, there isn't a one of us who's done that. There isn't a person on the planet who's done that. When you sin, did you not delight in it? If you didn't delight in it, then why did you do it? Every time we commit a crime against God, we generally what? Delighted. Are we trying to be good when we're doing that? But it, but but aside from all of that, it's law keeping, and that's what every the, those who study world religions tell us. That's what all the world religions teach. If you're going to get to heaven, you better be good. And that's why I call it the Santa Claus theology. You better watch out. You better not shout. You better tell you why Santa Claus is coming down. It's easy you when you sleep. You know that song. We're going to get there based on our performance. And oftentimes, folks like that will not deny. They will. Not. I, I don't think that this fellow is denying that you need faith in Jesus. I think he would say, yeah, you have to have faith in Jesus, but then you better walk the walk. If you don't walk the walk, then God's going to get you. How many times have you heard stuff like that? Maybe you even believe stuff like that for a long time. Maybe you believe that right now. If you do, it's a different gospel, and it will not take you to heaven. You're not going to go to heaven that way. Paul says if anyone teaches that to you, let them be accursed. That word accursed is a strong word. That word accursed is anathema. That means let you fall into God's eternal wrath. That's pretty strong language. No, Paul's saying in verse 19, he says, Through the law I died to the law. In terms of keeping the law to gain God's favor, in terms of trying to be justified by the law, I've died to that. Now sanctification is a different thing. When we come to, when a person really truly comes to saving faith, they do not want to be lawless after that. How can you receive such a gift from such a great God? How can you receive such a gift from such a great Savior, and not want to live a life after that that's pleasing to Him? some of you have been walking with Jesus for a while. Maybe you can relate with this. Maybe maybe you can amen this. Are you tired of sinning? I mean, doesn't it weary you? I know it does me, and I am really ready to be done with it. I mean, I am so ready to be done with it. I am so ready to go into the next life where we don't do that no more. We just don't do that no more. Um, that's what happens to a person when they come to faith in Christ and they begin to walk with him for a while. You're not going to be lawless. A person, a person who, who can say, listen, all you need is faith in Jesus. You die to the law. It doesn't matter how you live. There's fancy words for that stuff. Antinomianism is one of them. That person has not been brought to faith in Christ. That person doesn't understand. That person hasn't yet come. That's the sad thing about that. Let's look at verse 20 kind of quickly. I think we're going to spend a morning on verse 20. Paul goes on to say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, by the way. Verse 21, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Hang on to verse 21. I will tell you what I shared with I think two or three people this week when I was having these conversations, are you ready? Because I found it amazing. As I was talking about Robin's passing, people were saying, you know, I'm not far behind. It's because they've known Robin for like 50 years and they just recognize that the day is approaching And when I asked them, are you ready? They said, I hope so. All of them said, I hope so. And and this is what I ended up saying to them afterwards when they said, I've always tried to live a perfect life. I said, this is what I said to them. And it's right out of verse 21. If we could live perfect lives, then why would Jesus have to die on the cross? What would he be doing there? And I just hope and pray that that's something that will reverberate in their hearts. But let's think about that. We're talking about justification here right now. When Jesus said it is finished, do you realize what he accomplished when he said that? He accomplished the salvation of his church. And you can be rest assured, I said this yesterday at Dustin and Stephanie's wedding. I said, Jesus come to save his church and he will save his church. Don't worry about that. That isn't what we need to worry about. The church will be saved. The big problem for us is, are we going to be in the church? That was the point I was making. Are we in the church? You'll we'll say, well, I don't know. How do I know if I'm in the church? Are you trusting Christ? If you're trusting in Christ savingly, you're in the church. And if if, if you're here this morning, you will well, I'm not sure I'm doing that. Come and see us, because his arms are wide open to you. Seek him while he may be found. Right? His arms are wide open. The only thing that keeps us out of the church is our stubborn, rebellious hearts. That's it. It's not his will. It's not. What keeps us out is ourselves. That's what keeps us out. That's the human side of this thing. I'm speaking about the human side of salvation here. Obviously, there's a sovereign sign, and God knows who the are. is. But let's not worry about that right now. Let's worry about whether we're in. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, and we praise you, O Father, that you have come. In that single event on the cross, Jesus has secured the salvation for his church. And in your sovereignty and in your perfection, you will draw all those who you've come to save. Father, we don't have a list of the names, but Father, we do have this set before us. All we have to do is come and we can be in. All we have to do is surrender our law-keeping for your favor. Die to the law, as the Apostle Paul says in verse 19. Let us die to our attempts of trying to keep the law and be good people to get in. For, Father, we find out from the gospel that that is a foolish endeavor. It will never work. We only kid ourselves. Let us begin to see the gravity of what's before us. What's before us is if we don't come to Jesus humbly and simply receive what he is offering, namely his righteousness. If we don't come that way, we are never going to come at all. And, oh, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would cause this message, oh, Lord, to be proclaimed. For, Father, as we look around this, this, our society, we see that the problem that was going on in Galatia is just as live and well now as it has ever have been. So, Father, we pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.